song we kind of wanted to intro to you this morning. It's called New Wine by Hillsong. So if you have a chance, you can listen to that later and kind of get a little bit more familiar with it. I'm going to ask you to stand now and we'll open up in worship. We thank you that your mercy is indeed more, that no matter what path we have, we are, your mercy is more than enough. Though our sins are many, your grace, your mercy toward us is more. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, good to be with you here this morning as we gather together to worship. If you're visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We're, we're glad that you're here with us. If you are new, a couple of things for you to be aware of. First, out in the foyer, we'd invite you to visit our, our welcome table in the back. We'd love to give you a gift and to um, get to know you a little bit back there, answer any questions you may have about the church. Also in the seat in front of you, there's a, a connect card that we would invite you to fill out. Just let us know a little bit about yourself. Um, if you desire to, to get to know us, we'd love to reach out to you and yeah, tell you more about us that way as well. We, we just sang the song, His Mercy is More. And when I was kind of in the process of candidating here, like somebody asked me in the candidating process, like, what well, my favorite song was, and I answered that song, His Mercy is More. And that was two and a half years ago, and like, I don't think my answer has changed. Right? Like, it's still like, my favorite song, and maybe that means I'm kind of like, old and stuck in my ways. Right? But it's a great song, right? That like, thrown into an ocean without bottom or shore. Like, our sins, like, there are many, but His mercy is more. Like, all that to say, no matter what you come this morning, whatever baggage you may have from your past, what you bring you, like you are welcome here. We're glad you're here. We get to celebrate a Savior who paid the price for all our sins, no matter how many they may be. So we're glad you're here. A couple of uh, announcements for you to be aware of this morning. First, coming up on the 4th of July, our church is going to distribute water along the parade route and before the parade just as a way to bless our community um, and so two ways you can help with that one you can help by passing out water on the on the fourth um, you can help come along and yeah, pass out water on the parade route the second way you can help it by donating water right cases of bottled water um, we we want to have that to distribute. And so if you want to bring that to the church, you can leave it by the office. We will get that taken care of. We would yeah, appreciate any donations of water to help us distribute that way. Right? If you have any questions about any of that, you can contact Leah Rayberg. Her contact information is in, in the bulletin. Second thing coming up is VBS coming up in July, July 11th through 14th. And so if you have children that are um, kindergarten through going into sixth grade. We'd love to have them participate. If you know kids in the community or you have family that would want to come be part of that, we would encourage them to come. And also, if you want to volunteer for that, we would love to have you volunteer. You can contact Pastor Ian um, and he can get you more information about volunteering. So, this morning will be the first morning of our kind of our summer. Children's Church, which are four kids ages four through seven. And so it's up to you as parents whether you want your four to seven-year-old to stay in the service during the worship service or they can go downstairs um, and have a, have a time of children's church. Right? It'll be in classroom one. Um, if you don't know where that is, just follow the crowd. You'll, you'll find it. Right? And then finally, after the service this morning, we will have our annual meeting, so we would invite, especially those of you who are members, but anyone's welcome uh, to come hear about some of the things going on in the life of our church, and also to vote on the people listed on the back of your bulletin and um, the budget for the upcoming fiscal year. 
So with that, we're going to head back into worship, but let me pray for us first. Father, we thank you for the chance to, to gather as your people in this place. You've been at work in each one of our lives here, throughout our lives, to bring us to this place here and now for reasons that are bigger than we can sometimes understand. But you've brought each of us to this place this morning. So we pray in this time you would be at work in each one of our heart, in each one of our minds, that you would help us put away other distractions, other concerns. And we would fix our heart and fix our minds on you. We would reflect the glorious thing you have done for us, things that are worthy of honor and praise and glory. I pray that as we worship, we would glorify you in response to all that you've done for us. And as we hear your word this morning, pray that you would work in our heart, soften our heart, transform our heart to make us more into the image of your Son, Jesus, than when we walked in this morning. Would you, by the power of your word, transform each of us this morning? Would you help us to live lives that glorify you well and reflect Jesus to a watching world? We pray for those in our in our family who are our church family who are sick, who are hurting, that you would give comfort and peace to those who need it. You bring healing to those who need it. That through it all you would work out your good purposes even in the midst of hardship and trial. Father, would you be honored here this morning by all that takes place. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to ask you to stand and continue worshiping. Um, you know, often I pick songs and don't think about the words totally. And then Pastor Tim will say something or I'll talk to somebody in the morning. And then as I'm sitting here reading the lyrics, I'm like, wow, that fits so well. So we just sang His Mercy is More. We're going to start with Your Grace is Enough. So not to mention that there's parallel structure in the titles here, but also the whole idea that he just said like that, kind of like we underestimate God sometimes. His mercy is more. His grace is enough. We we come in at a place and we think we've got it under control and really God's bigger than all of that and he is in control. And all these songs this morning really have that component to it. So let's just worship this morning and really praise God for who he is.
There was nothing we could do to earn it. All because of your grace and your mercy towards us, we can come before you. We can come to the altar because of our forgiveness through Jesus, the purchased by his blood. Thank you. We pray that you loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us. And we honor you and glorify you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. So if you would like your four to seven-year-old to go to Children's Church downstairs, they are dismissed at this time. So I like to consider myself like a fairly tech-savvy person. Like, like I feel like I'm relatively competent at using technology. I'm always like, eager and excited to use new technology as it becomes available. But my competence ends like, on the user side of things. Right? Like, when it comes to like, creating technology or, or coding or computer programming, those sorts of things, like how technology works under the hoods, like I am hopeless. Like, like I'm, I'm way over my head, like I don't do that. Right? But I do find it fascinating like what people who are proficient in those areas can do with their, their skills. Especially in the like, earlier days of the internet when it was like, wildly unregulated. Like, people got up to all kinds of shenanigans, some of them quite funny. One of my favorite examples of this was something called Google bombing, right? where you could like a specific web page could be manipulated to let it with the first result in Google's search results. Right? That's especially matters because if you use Google's "I'm feeling lucky" feature, right? like you can, get, I, you can click "I'm feeling lucky" and it just takes you to the first result. They don't take you to the list of all the search results; it just takes you to the page that's the first on their list. So they can be exploited. So, for example, you could, you could search, back in the day, you could search in Google, you could type, find Chuck Norris into the Google search box. And if you hit, I'm feeling lucky, it would bring you to a page that said this. Right? Google won't search for Chuck Norris, because it knows that you don't find Chuck Norris, he finds you. <laughs> and then suggestions, run before he finds you, Try a different person. Try someone less dangerous. <laughs> or, likewise, back in the day, you could, you could search French military victories and then hit, I'm feeling lucky, and it would take you to this page. Did you mean French military defeats? Because no standard web pages containing all your search terms were found. Right. Right, the joke, of course, there being that like, the French were famous for some military failures throughout history. Perhaps the most famous of these being when like, the Germans just blitzed through France during World War II. And lots of ink had been spilled about like, why France was so easily defeated during World War II. But the, the broad consensus, the oversimplified reason is that like, they just weren't prepared. Like they, were, they had prepared for World War II like they were expecting another version of World War I. 
Like one historian put it this way. French military tactics were extremely outdated at the start of the war. They had failed to recognize that warfare had fundamentally changed since the First World War. They relied on defensive tactics and failed to grasp the impact of modern tanks and aircraft. They were defeated because in the lead-up to the war, they were preparing for the wrong future. And in today's passage in the book of Luke, we see that like, many people make the same mistake when it comes to how they prepare for their future, especially in regards to how they use their money. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. And in this passage, Jesus tells a parable in which we see that most people use their worldly money, their earthly wealth, to prepare for the wrong future. And Jesus encourages his disciples in this parable not to make the same mistake. Instead, he urges his disciples to use their wealth to prepare, to prepare for a future that matters most, or to prepare for their eternal future. So that's the, that's the main idea of this passage. That's the, the big lesson. But Jesus, but Jesus teaches that parable using, Jesus teaches that lesson using a parable that's a little challenging for us to wrap our minds around. For me, as a pastor, that we've gone through this, this book of Luke, it's been interesting to see how Luke seems to alternate fairly straightforward passages with more challenging passages. Right? So last week, we looked at the passage right before this one, which is at the parable of the two sons, or more commonly known as the parable of the, the prodigal son. And look, if you're, you're a pastor, and you can't preach a like, halfway decent sermon on the Parable of the prodigal son, like you should probably maybe look for another career. Like I should probably be careful saying that because maybe my sermon wasn't halfway decent. But right, it's, it's a fairly straightforward passage. It's, it's, it's fairly on the sur- most surface level. Like the father loved the son despite his sinful living. That's an easy to preach passage. But the passage this morning is kind of the the exact opposite. This, this passage opens with a, a confusing parable. In fact, this parable has left people like scratching their heads for, for centuries. Like Even the world's smartest biblical scholars have trouble knowing what to do with this passage. Right? So here's just a few comments that I came across in books and commentaries as I prepared this week. So Daryl Bach, who's written what pretty much everyone agrees it's kind of the gold standard academic commentary on the book of Luke, says this. He says, Luke 16, 1 through 8, contains probably the most difficult parable in Luke. Which is a little daunting. But maybe, like, well, like at least he's only talking about the book of Luke. right? Maybe, maybe Luke is just a really easy book to understand. Right? And so saying the most difficult parable in Luke is like saying like the most difficult 20-piece puzzle. Right? The bar is just not that high. Right? But the comments get even more daunting. Craig Blomberg, who's one of the world's leading scholars on the life and times of Jesus, says in his book, Jesus and the Gospels, he says this, The story of the unjust steward 
is perhaps the most perplexing of all of Jesus' parables. Likewise, Philip Ryken, who's the president at Wheaton College, says in his commentary, few other parables have caused as much perplexity or received as many interpretations as this one. And again, that's, that's daunting, but at least they're just talking about the parable. Right? So the parables are supposed to be relatively straightforward stories. So maybe, like, again, the bar's not that high. But then Robert Stein comes and he ruins everything when he says this. Few passages in all of Scripture have caused as much confusion as this parable. And just as a little bonus cherry on top, James Edwards says, a bewildering array of proposals have been advanced to explain this parable. So it's a daunting passage before us this morning. But passages like this are why I'm such a believer in preaching through whole books of the Bible. If I were just going to pick and choose what I was going to preach each Sunday, based on whatever I felt like, I would never choose this passage. Like on, on SermonCentral.com, which is like this huge archive of hundreds of thousands of sermons, there are over 2,000 sermons on the parable of the prodigal son. And there are less than 200 on this parable. Like, unless you're forced by a commitment to preach through books of the Bible, people are not going to preach on this passage generally. But like, it's still the words of Jesus. And Luke chose to include it in his gospel. We know the gospel writers had to be selective, had to pick and choose what they included. I mean, Luke chose this as worthy of our attention. And so this morning, I'm going to take my best crack at explaining what's going on here. I just want to like, set the stage by saying, like, this parable is universally hard to understand. So with that said, like, let's read this parable together. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So we have this rich man, this wealthy landowner who's hired a manager to look after his affairs. But the manager is doing a pretty bad job of it, it appears. So, he, so the rich man decides to fire the manager. But in what was perhaps not the smartest move... The rich man tells the manager he fired before getting a full accounting of the books. Like, like it rarely goes well to say to someone, like, you're fired. But before you leave, can you do one more thing for me? Like, people aren't usually terribly receptive to that. But that's what the rich man does here. And so the manager sees an opportunity. And in verse 3, the manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So the manager knows he's about to be out of a job, out of income. And his role as a manager in this culture meant that his job came with a place to live on the rich man's 
estate. So he's about to be not only out of income, but he's about to be homeless as well. So he concocts this plan to make sure he has a place to live after he loses his job. In verse, starting and continuing in verse 5. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told them, Take your bill and make it 800. So with the man who owed olive oil, it would have taken about like 150 olive trees to produce the amount of oil he owed. So this is not an insignificant amount of oil. And that oil would have been worth about 1,000 denarii, which is a denarii is a day's wage. So 1,000 denarii is like over three years' wages that this man owes. And the manager cuts that in half, right? saving the debtor about 500 denarii. Right, so about a year and a half worth of wages. The second debtor owes a thousand bushels of wheat. And that much wheat would have required several hundred acres of land to grow that much wheat. And it was worth close to 3,000 denarii, so like nine years' wages. The manager tells him to reduce the bill to 800 bushels, which would once again save the debtor about 500 denarii in the grand scheme of things. Right? So the percentages are different, but both men are saved about 500 denarii. And one of the debates that kind of surrounds this passage, one of the things that makes it difficult is that no one can really agree on what exactly is going on here. Right? There are kind of two options. Either one, he was, this manager was cheating the master out of money, just outright. Option two is the manager was kind of removing his portion off the top. Right? So like one of the reasons that tax collectors were so unpopular back in Jesus' days is that they didn't get a salary for being a tax collector. Right? But the Romans told them, like, you need to collect this much taxes, and everything you collect above and beyond that tax is your salary. And so they would collect as much as they could to it, inflate their salary. And the same thing is probably true of this manager, that... He like, had a set amount he had to get from the master's debtors, but that everything he collected beyond that was kind of his cut. So one, one theory is that this man, by removing 500 denarii from each bill, is just removing his cut. Right? The manager will still get all of his own, but the, but the manager will lose his, his share. But then some experts read this and think that the, the manager is just simply cheating the master out of money, right? That it all belongs to the master, and he's just cheating the master out of money. No one can really agree. I have six commentaries. They are split three and three on which one is right. Well, that's not helpful, right? Like, I'm, I'm slightly, and I mean slightly inclined to think that the manager is just not taking his cut, but that the master will still receive his full share because of how the master responds in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. It's important to note here, the master doesn't commend the manager for the behavior itself, right, but for his, his shrewdness. And shrewd kind of gets used as almost like wisdom throughout the Bible. It's a wise thing for this man to do. 
or growth. I have a hard time imagining that the master would have commended anything if the manager had cheated the master out of money. That's not the parable. That's where the, kind of the parable itself in the passage ends. And it's, it's tricky, and it's confusing, and it's hard to know exactly what's going on there. But what's really confusing is not so much the parable itself, but what's really confusing is answering the question, like, well, why did Jesus tell this parable? Like, surely he's not telling us to act with dishonesty. And so what does Jesus want us to take away from this story? Fortunately, he gives us a, a clear explanation in verses 8 and 9. In the middle of verse 8, the parable itself ends, and Jesus starts explaining to his disciples why he told this parable. Jesus says this, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Especially verse 9 is abundantly clear, right? Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So I think what Jesus is saying here, that like, the manager of this parable, in this parable, like, he used worldly wealth to make friends. Right? To, by reducing their bill, he made friends. So that he would be welcomed into their home when his access to that wealth was cut off. As soon as he was fired, his wealth, his access to money would be gone. But he had used his access to that wealth while he still had access to prepare for his future. And Jesus is telling his disciples to do the same thing. Like, like one day, like when we die, like our access to earthly wealth will be gone. It will be of no value to us. Like we all have heard the same. Like you can't take it with you. Like there's no value in wealth once we die. So the question we must answer here and now, while we live, is like, am I using the wealth that I have? Will I have it to prepare for the future that matters most to me? But the future that mattered most to the manager in this parable was its earthly future immediately after he was fired. But for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, we have a far more significant, far more eternal future to consider. So Jesus is urging his disciples to use their money, use their wealth, here and now, in this life, to prepare for that eternal future. To prepare for their eternal dwelling, to prepare for your eternal home. Use your money now to prepare for your eternal future, not your earthly future. We need to be careful a little bit because like, the passage is not saying that you can in any way buy your way into heaven. It's not saying that. But what this passage is saying is that we should use our wealth now, to make friends, Jesus says. And by friends here, I, 
I think Jesus is saying, like, use your wealth now to build relationships that will ultimately lead people to faith in Jesus. To use your wealth to, to build relationships, to lead people to Jesus. And if you do that, some of those friends who have followed Jesus because of your influence, like, odds are some of them will die before you do. And then when you die, they will be in glory waiting for you to welcome you to your eternal home. Right, so use your wealth now to lead people to Jesus so that they're waiting for you in eternity. That's what I take Jesus to mean here. Use your money to lead people to Jesus so that they will welcome you to your eternal dwelling when your time on earth is at an end. Right? Or to put it even more succinctly, use your worldly wealth now in ways that honor God. That's a relatively clear, relatively straightforward explanation that Jesus gives to this confusing parable. But just because the explanation is clear doesn't mean that it's easy to apply to our lives. This is a a clear explanation with a challenging application. It's like we're inclined, aren't we, to, to hold our worldly wealth dearly. But in verses 10 through 13, Jesus shows us why it's so important to use our wealth in a way that honors God. He says this. Jesus says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And those four verses, Jesus, I think, challenges three assumptions that often cause us to use our money in a way that doesn't honor God. I think there's three lies here that we believe about money that Jesus exposes in these verses. The first of these lies is this. The first lie we believe about money is that money, er, earthly wealth is true riches. So look at verse 11 again. Jesus says, If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Like, so, like, let's be clear. That's saying like, worldly wealth, like, not true riches. Like, it's a, a shadow, a fragment. It's not the real thing. Worldly wealth, not true riches. There are true riches waiting for you in eternity. Right? But worldly wealth is just a warm-up. And how you use worldly wealth is, is practice, basically, to, to, to see if you are trustworthy enough to be entrusted with the true riches in the age to come. In verse 10, Jesus says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little 
will also be dishonest with much. And no matter how much wealth you have in this life, Jesus says it's, it's very little compared to what awaits you in eternity. Whatever wealth you have, it's, it's nothing compared to the wealth that awaits you. But that's not often how we live. At least, like, that's not how I often think about my, my own money and my own wealth. Like, I hold my money dear. I worry about it. I fret over it. I use it in ways that are primarily about my comfort and enjoyment. I don't think of my money and wealth as a, the very little thing that Jesus called it. I often act as if my money, my worldly wealth is indeed true riches. But Jesus here challenges that false assumption. The second false assumption that Jesus challenges here is that worldly wealth is truly ours. Look at verse 12. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus, in that, when he refers to someone else's property, he's talking about our wealth in this life. Whatever you have in this life, whatever wealth, whatever possessions, whatever money, Jesus says ultimately it's someone else's property. Everything you have ultimately belongs not to you, but to God. And therefore, like our goal should be to use our money in a way that God desires, in a way that pleases God. Not the way that we deem best for us personally, for our comfort, for our enjoyment. And this idea that our money, our wealth is not our own can be especially challenging in a culture that values hard work. In a culture that teaches that through determination and fortitude, like anyone can make it. Like that's, like, that's the American dream. Like, look, I, I love our country. I love that through hard work you can raise yourself up out of hard economic situations, out of poverty but we need to be a little bit careful. We need to be careful that as we celebrate hard work, we don't conflate that celebration of hard work with believing that we deserve everything coming to us, right? that our wealth is our own. Ultimately, our wealth still belongs to God. God gave you the, the physical ability to work hard. God gave you the work ethic, the motivation to work hard. So if you, you worked hard to work your way out of whatever hardship you were in, like, that's great, and, but it's still God at work. And that wealth is still God's. Like, that's the, so like, the wealth He gives you is still ultimately His. So the question is, like, do we have this kind of attitude about our money? Like, do we really believe that our money is ultimately God's? Like, when you're thinking about making a purchase, like, it's your first question in your head, like, can I afford this? Or is this thing worth it to me? Like, are those the first questions that come in your head? Or it's the first question that you ask, does this use of my money honor and please God? 
And look, it's okay to buy things, like primarily for your enjoyment. Like God wants you to be happy. Like God gives you good gifts to enjoy. Like they are gifts of His grace. We need to be careful that our primary motivation and every use of our wealth is not our own enjoyment and our own happiness. The third assumption that Jesus challenges in these verses is that earthly wealth is our true master. In verse 13, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Life's biggest, most important decisions will often be informed by who your true master is. If you think about some of the big questions of life. Should I, should I take this higher paying job that will demand more of my time? Or should I, I stay in a lower paying job that allows me more time for relationships and service to others? Should I buy this car or this house that's at the very top of my price range? Or should I buy a cheaper car or a cheaper house that allows me more flexibility in my budget to give to the church or at the need that I see them arise? And again, there's, there's nothing wrong in having a nice car or a high-paying job or a nice house in and of themselves. But the problem arises when those things become our master more than God is our master. Those become our driving influence, the thing that motivates each of our decisions. Our worldly wealth, the money that God has entrusted to us, it is not ours. And it should not be our master. So in light of this passage... Jesus called us to use our wealth, like to prepare for the future that matters most to us. And the future that matters most to us, as followers of Jesus, should not be our retirement, should not be whatever else. Like, like it's good to prepare for those things. But more so, we need to prepare for our eternal future. So in light of that, I think three ways we see here to use our money in a way that prepare for that future. The first, like use money to build and form relationships. Bless others with what God has given you. Feed people. Invite them to places. Like build relationships with your wealth so that like through those interactions you can have conversations about Jesus with them. You can point them to the grace that's found in Jesus. Like Use your money to build relationships. The second use of our money that like we see encouraged here is to use money to support the church and to support other ministries. It's always a little awkward or touchy for me to stand up here and talk about giving money to the church, but like we're going to have our annual meeting after this and we're going to present a, a budget that we hope shows that we are serious about using the money that you give to the church well for the glory of God. We like, invite you to be part of that. 
to give, to support the church so that we can do things that draw people to Jesus, that help people grow to be more like Jesus, that serve our community and the people around us. Like our goal as a church is to use the money you give well, to be good stewards, to point people to Jesus. So we hope that we, that we use your money, that you would be encouraged to give to the church to meet those needs. And the third way that we think we see that you can use money here is to use your money to meet the needs of the neediest around you. It doesn't have to be through any religious organization, but just to meet the needs of people in need. God cares for the hurting. God cares for the needy. To use the money He has given you to help meet those needs as well. But one of the, one of the challenges of speaking about money is that like we're probably all aware of times that we've failed in this area. Probably none of us here can't think back of a time where you think of like, yeah, I know I used my money in a way that was all about me, that was selfish, that was sinful. We've all been there. Look, those songs we sang this morning, that His mercy is more, His grace is enough. Like those, are, those are good news. They tell us that Jesus and going to the cross for us, He died for all the times that we failed to use our money in the way that God would have us use it. We are forgiven that our sins, even if they relate to the use of money, are many. His mercy is still more. Our sins are forgiven. But Jesus going to the cross not only encourages us that our past misuse of money is forgiven, but it also serves as our primary motivation for why we ought to use our money well. Again, using our money well is not a way to earn God's favor. It's not a way to buy our way into heaven. We can't get to heaven just because we use our money in ways that please God. Ultimately, the only way to heaven is by trusting and believing in Jesus. But if Paul tells us, when we trust and believe in Jesus, we are admitting that we are not our own, that we were bought with a price. That we are bought by the precious blood of Jesus as we sang earlier. And now we are no longer our own. We exist to honor and glorify God. And if we're truly captured by all that Jesus did for us, how much God loved us in sending Jesus to die for us, if we really wrap our minds around that, then how can we not use the wealth that God has given us to point other people to that truth and to honor God with our wealth? Our use of our money to honor God is not about us earning favor, but about glorifying and honoring God for what He's already done for us on the cross in Jesus. So, I don't know what you're feeling now about the way you've used your money in the past, the way you're 
currently using your money. There's guilt there. It's forgiven. It's paid for. I want you to repent and trust that Jesus died for all your sins, including any ways you've misused money in the past. And if you trust in Jesus, if you reflect on the glorious thing that He's done for you, how He lived a sinless life, He suffered in your place on the cross. You reflect on that. Would that motivate you to use your wealth, not for yourself, not for your own enjoyment, at least not first and foremost, but for His glory? Would you use it to point others to Him that they could experience the forgiveness that's only found in Jesus? Do we use our wealth in a way that reflects that we truly believe that our wealth is not our own and that we are not our own, that we were bought with a price? Do we use our money to prepare for our eternal future by using our money to honor God? Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for all that you've done for us, for the wealth you've given each of us. We so easy to take for granted how we live in one of the wealthiest countries in all of history. That even those of us who considered poor from a national perspective are far wealthier than the vast majority of people throughout human history. So easy to take our wealth for granted, think that we've earned it and it's ours to use as we see fit and so we Father repent of all the time we've had that attitude Father would you form and reshape our minds would our thinking be renewed especially as it comes to money to remind us that it's all from you and it all belongs to you. When we use our worldly wealth, our money, our possessions in a way that reflects that we truly believe that it is all yours. It is not ours. Father, we thank you for that you loved us enough to send Jesus to die in our place. We know we could never repay that. We could never earn that on our own. But would we use our money and our wealth to point other people to that reality and bring glory to your name? You are the great giver of all good gifts. 
thank you for the multitude of ways you have blessed us and cared for us. Let our lives reflect how thankful we are and they bring you glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the reminder, we'll have our, our annual meeting following this. We'll give you some time to go downstairs, get coffee, talk for a little bit. We'll try to get started probably around 10.30 with the annual meeting up here if you are attending that. If you, if you go from here this morning, would you go knowing and trusting and acknowledging that God is the giver of all good gifts and desiring to use those gifts to bring Him glory? You are dismissed.